The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning, church. As I said earlier, my name is Kelly Graham. I'm grateful to be here with my church family this morning. We're going to continue through chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke. Last week, Greg preached on the transfiguration of Jesus. While I try to get this microphone adjusted, sorry. And the transfiguration is when Jesus showed his visible glory to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Now, I love that text. What a wonderful and honestly fearful opportunity to behold the glory of Jesus. A glory for humans, though, it's a finicky thing. <laughs> in many ways, glory in human society is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, first off, I mean, what do we even mean when we use the word glory? Well, in Scripture, the Greek word for glory is connected to light, you know, beaming light, radiant light, which is why we see that word used in reference to the transfiguration when Jesus shone with an unnatural light. It's also connected to greatness and mightiness. When you see glory connected to mightiness, you can see how in our day and age, Glory is often associated and related to achievements because great achievements are a form of mightiness. So glory isn't just a visible trait. It has to do with works and achievements as well. Now who, by raise of hands, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, how many of you have seen Hidden Figures, the movie? You've seen Hidden Figures? Eh, some of you have. Hidden Figures is about three African-American women who were mathematicians at NASA. Uh, their names were Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson. And to the prevailing American culture, these women were anything but glorious. That's not to say they weren't actually glorious, as you soon find out. But the prevailing culture was racist and sexist, and these were African-American women. So you can see how that might have turned out at that day and age. It would have been nice if these women were uh, understood at that time as having been made in the image of God and deserving of respect and dignity. But I don't think everybody thought that of African-Americans at that time. And these three women would soon be treasures of the, of the American scientific community, and they would be treasures to American history, honestly, but they were considered less thans in their society, bearing no glory, or at least their glory was concealed. They couldn't use the same bathrooms as white women, and they had to work in a different workspace than white employees. There was prejudice and segregation 
And these three women had to put up with quite a lot of ungodly presuppositions about their dignity, their respectability, and even the quality of their work. I don't mean to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, but these women ended up proving themselves through their work. And they earned the respect of their co-workers despite everything that came against them in their society. <clears throat> you might even say these, these women were mighty, or glorious, and majestic by the definitions that we've already talked about. Because their works were not just great on the scale of African Americans as their co-workers seemed to think, as their white co-workers seemed to think, but on the scale of human achievement and intelligence as a whole, these women were brilliant. And there was so much more to them than their skin color, even though their skin color deserved dignity. There was so much more to them than the fact that they were women, though they deserved dignity as women as well. They proved their glory, their majesty, so to speak, through their work, even though they shouldn't have had to prove themselves any more than anyone else at their time. In the end, it was undeniable that they deserved some glory, hence the movie made about them, right? Maybe you see where I'm going here. Like these women, the glory of Jesus was visibly concealed. But he, had no, he was no less glorious than he was before the foundation of the world. Just look at his works and achievement that we talk about every single week. Jesus could have come in all of his glory, blazing like the sun, and he could have demanded the respect of his human creations, but instead of forcing and demanding recognition and glory, he decided to show his glory in a more subtle way, through his work and through his character. To be completely honest, church, Jesus has glory to which no human could compare glory that was visibly concealed in his earthly ministry, but which shined brightly through his unique work, through his unique character, and through his unique identity as the Son of God. So let's read the sermon text today, and then we'll pray that God will bless our time here as we hear the Word of God taught. And, and uh, open your Bibles now to Luke 9, verses 37 through 45. Luke 9. 37 through 45. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back of your seat, um, it'll be on page 867 if that's helpful for you. I know some people don't like scrounging through trying to figure out where a book of the Bible is. They don't know where it is. So I encourage you to follow along. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, just go ahead and look at the screens as well. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 9, 37 through 45. On the next day after the transfiguration, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? 
bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this, the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mighty works, for your mighty acts on, the behalf of, on behalf of mankind that culminate in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who put on flesh and gave us what we needed but we could not attain ourselves, which was the salvation that was required through the blood of a spotless lamb. I pray that you would help us to understand just how majestic and glorious you truly are as displayed through your Son, that you are just as glorious at the transfiguration as you were at every other part of Jesus' ministry. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Okay, once again, we're going, I'm going to share with you a biblical truth from today's scripture text. This is a thesis, basically, that will help us guide us through this text and stay on track. The biblical truth we've already touched on, but I'm going to give it to you right now. The, majest- the majesty of Christ, though visibly concealed, shines brightly through his unique work. Let me repeat that. The majesty of Christ, though visibly concealed, shines brightly through his unique work. Glory and majesty are very similar terms. Glory is the word Luke used to describe the transfiguration, and majesty is the word Luke used to describe Jesus and the events that immediately follow. Majesty does have a sort of added emphasis of power. Jesus isn't just gloriously mighty in potential, His mighty works are powerful. And having just seen that Christ's visible glory in the transfiguration, we're now faced with Christ's majesty through his works. Luke is intensifying his case through this gospel story that Jesus is the Christ, who is in fact the divine Son of God. Luke is showing that no one compares to Jesus, that he is unique in majesty and just as majestic in his work as he was glorious on the Mount of Transfiguration. When you read today's passage, you find that Luke wants us to draw a few contrasts between Jesus and other characters and situations. Now, there are undoubtedly a lot of attention-grabbing details in this text that we could talk about for hours. Yes, there is a demon possession. Yes, the demon causes the boy's seizures. 
Yes, Jesus seems weary of dealing with the people that he created, and yes, God conceals the disciples' understanding when Jesus foretells his death. Interesting, right? We will touch on these very interesting subjects, but we're mostly going to keep our focus where Luke keeps his own, letting the author guide us instead of focusing on these other really cool things. We'll talk about them, though. And with that said, I'm going to give you four contrasts that I see Luke making to show that Jesus is uniquely majestic in his work. Here's our first one. Number one, the majesty of Christ makes him greater than the disciples. The majesty of Christ makes him greater than the disciples. You might think, what, what's the big deal? We know that he is. Well, let me just go ahead and make the contrast that he's making right now. Luke 37 through 40, I'm going to reread this so that you can see the contrast. On the next day, when he had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast him out, but they could not. Now, if you remember when Greg preached the, the, uh, the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples on a mission, on their own. He delegates his power and authority to them to cast out demons, to cure diseases, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And if we didn't know any better, we might begin to think that Jesus has made the disciples just as powerful as himself. I mean, he delegated his authority to them, right? But it's not quite like that. The disciples are not Jesus' peers when it comes to authority and power. They're his students. Beyond that, Jesus is God. The disciples are honored among men for sure, but they are still mere humans like you and I. Now, there is this one episode of The Office, and I know I'm going to get some eye rolls when I mention The Office from some people who don't like it, but... Uh, there's this one episode of The Office where Joe, the manager after Michael Scott, she leaves Dwight Schrute temporarily in charge of The Office. Dwight Schrute, if you haven't seen the series, is a very quirky guy, to say the least. And Dwight tries to fire his nemesis, Jim Halpert, and Jim tells Dwight, you can't do that because you're only acting manager. You're not the real manager. And then... Dwight tells him, well, then you're pre-fired, and when I'm promoted, you'll be full-fired. I love that moment. Why do I tell you this? It's because even in our own society, the one who delegates authority has more power than the one to whom they delegate it to. Dwight doesn't have the actual authority to fire because that's not his position. His position is limited, even though he's on delegated authority. The actual, merit, uh, the actual manager is there in their position by merit, not by delegation. Church, this is the same with Jesus. Jesus has eternal power because he is the second person of the Trinity. From before the foundation of the world, he is the, the son of God to whom all authority has been given on heaven and earth. 
unlimited in power and majesty. That can be said of no mere human. When Jesus, Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain, the father of this demon-possessed child asked the remaining disciples for help, but their efforts proved insufficient. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine? You've been delegated the authority to cast out demons in the past. Why isn't this working? We've done this before. They might have been embarrassed, maybe even ashamed. Maybe they began to doubt that Jesus really was who he said he was. Maybe those other times were just a coincidence. But then, Jesus comes down from the mountain. His glory is concealed, looking like a normal man. Yet that normal-looking man is the Son of God. And on the inside, he is surging with the majesty that spoke light into the darkness. His glory was concealed, but his power was so majestic that the people could not deny that God was doing something great when he healed the boy. The father of that child came before the king and asked what only Jesus could give. And Jesus gave him the desire of his heart. The king in all his humble majesty heard this man's request and granted the healing that he desired. What kindness is this that he would, he should hear the requests of mere humans? Now, I haven't spoken to this crazy idea that we've already talked about, about a boy being possessed by a demon. It's kind of bizarre, right? In our day and age, it doesn't seem like that really happens. Well, I have two things to say about the demon possession, just touching on it. First, demon possession is a real thing. If you believe the text of Scripture, it's true. It does happen, and we cannot take that for granted. Yet Jesus is more majestic, more powerful than the demonic possession. And so we really have nothing to fear if we are gods. Second, Jesus already healed a demon in the preceding chapter, in the preceding chapter, in chapter 8. The demon possession isn't the point here. It's just the scenario that carries Luke's main idea that Jesus is more majestic than all created beings. So don't get sidetracked by this demon possession. Jesus is greater than the 12 disciples. He's greater than all. And that is the point. And that brings us to our second contrast. Let's talk about the second contrast that Luke is making. Number two, the majesty of Christ is shown through faithfulness when all others are unfaithful. Majesty of Christ is shown through faithfulness when all others are unfaithful. When the father asked Jesus to heal his son, this was Jesus' response 
in verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus lamented the faithlessness and twistedness of this generation. Some translations use the language perverse generation. And who was Jesus speaking to when he made that comment? It seems that he was referring to everyone there, including the disciples. Now let me make this clear about Jesus' reaction. Jesus wasn't complaining. He was lamenting. And there's a difference. And we need to understand the difference. Complaining comes from an unfaithful heart and a, un, in a, in a begrudging heart at what is happening. Lamenting is a faithful recognition that things are not as God desires. Jesus never once sinned by complaining and this lamentation comes from a deep understanding that the hearts of those standing around him were not honoring God. Jesus lamented the crowd's unbelief and their perverted understanding of his ability, of the ability of God to make all things right in the world. It seems that Jesus may have even been lamenting their amazement at Jesus while still lacking the faith that should accompany it. The scriptures are full of people who were amazed at Jesus, who were impressed with his works, yet did not have the faith that leads to salvation. Church, can I give us a warning here for me and for you? We need to check our hearts to make sure that we are not just merely impressed with Jesus, but that we have actual faith in Jesus. Hear me out. We need faith. Amazement alone has more to do with being an onlooker and perceiving that Jesus is good. And I'm going to make a distinction here because faith requires more than amazement. It requires participating in the truth by submitting to King Jesus in all things. That's the difference between faith and just thinking Jesus is impressive. And I've seen it far too often in the church. I've seen it far too often, sometimes in my own life, where I'm impressed with Jesus, but I fail to submit to him as my king. We need faith, not just amazement. You see, the contrast that Luke is making here is that Jesus was never unfaithful. Jesus laments unfaithfulness and twistedness in the world. Jesus is the only one who remained completely, holistically, unwaveringly faithful to his Father, even to death on a cross. The disciples could not measure up to the majesty of Jesus. And neither could the entire generation. Neither can you and me. We do not measure up to Jesus. But Jesus may have said, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? 
But take joy, church, because Jesus is still with us by his Holy Spirit. And he has continued to bear with us even today, though we are stubborn and twisted and quite frankly awful to deal with. I truly believe that the reason the disciples weren't, uh, were unable to heal this boy was because of this problem with faith. There might have been a shift in their hearts from trusting in the power of Jesus to heal to believing that the power might have been in themselves. And Jesus might have taken that Billy away from them in this situation. But this is the majesty of Jesus. That he is faithful when all others are unfaithful and he continues to be long-suffering. He continues to heal. He continues to love. And he continues to give his presence even when all of our, uh, our faithlessness abounds. Let us model our lives after Jesus, church, in our relationships, with our marriages, with our families, with our friendships, and within the church. As Jesus is uniquely majestic in his faithfulness, may we strive as people to be faithful in honor of him, even though we will fail. Now, for the third contrast that Luke, I believe, is bringing out in this passage, number three, the majesty of Christ is more powerful than spiritual and natural forces. Remember, majesty has connotations of mighty power, but there are still other powerful forces out there, are there not? Let's read verses 42 and the beginning of verse 43 again. He was, uh, while he was coming, the, the demon-possessed boy, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to the, his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now let me warn you here because there are some incorrect implications you could draw from just this passage alone if you're not careful. You might begin to think that behind every sickness is some demon causing them. The next thing you know, you're starting to have acid reflux and you're calling your pastor for an exorcism. I know that's an exaggeration, but if you're listening to people long enough, especially in ministry, you come across folks that think that there's a demon behind every single physical ailment that they may have or of every unpleasant situation they may find themselves in. Now, it's true. The unclean spirit harassing the boy was causing his seizures, but not all seizures and ailments are demonic. In Matthew 4, 24, it's not going to be on the screen, but we see seizures distinguished from demon possession so that we know there is a distinction. But what we have here is a spiritual being in a natural ailment connected. But neither is more powerful than the majesty of Christ. When Jesus speaks and all he has to do is speak, church. Just like when he created the universe. When Jesus speaks, demons vacate their hosts and ailments disappear. Church, the power of Jesus is unmatched. 
The power of Jesus is the power of God. He has ultimate power over all things spiritual and natural. No one is his equal. His majesty is beyond comprehension. Now, by no means does God's healing power mean that all of our sicknesses will be healed this side of heaven. Jesus may choose to heal you if you ask, but he may choose to wait until the day he takes you home. All Jesus has to do is speak, but God is patient. He does not use his words flippantly. Sometimes our ailments are used for our good. And that's a hard truth, but it's truth. Many of you know that I wear hearing aids because I have profound hearing loss, but I don't believe that I would be before you preaching today if God had not used my hearing loss to make a shift from full worship ministry, music ministry, into preaching the Word of God. I don't think I would have been here had it not been for that ailment. And do I wish that God would take it away from me? Absolutely. But I see what he's doing. At this point in my life, I'm able to see some of what he's doing through my ailment. God is the master of knowing when to relent and when relenting would be worse for us in the end. No unclean spirit, no natural circumstance or ailment has more power than Jesus. That means that we can present ourselves and our circumstances to God and trust that God will deal with them properly. In the same way that Jesus said, bring your son here, maybe he's telling you, bring your job here or bring your marriage here or bring your own child here. Whether he chooses to heal or chooses to wait, still, trust him. He is worthy. Jesus is majestic beyond compare, and his power is perfectly measured in his hand before he applies it for our good. Jesus is more powerful than spiritual and natural forces. What is the final contrast that Luke makes in this passage? This is one of my favorites. Number four, the majesty of Christ subverts our preconceived notions of majesty. You hear me on that? The majesty of Christ subverts our own understanding of what majesty even is. As humans, our ability to misjudge the worth of a person is astounding. (laughs) We are notorious for misjudging individuals and groups of people, and especially people that don't look and act like us. Remember the women from Hidden Figures? Society had no idea how wonderful those women were. And we love movies about underdogs. You wanna know why we love movies about underdogs? It's because we're terrible judges of other people. We don't judge people rightly. I mean, seriously, some of the best musicians never get known. Some of the most brilliant minds have hard times finding a job. Some of the most horribly behaved kids have the greatest capacity for making a change for the better. I mean, talk about judgment, some of you are Gamecock fans. 
What's wrong with our judgment? But seriously, I don't care about sports at all, so I'm just picking on you. Sometimes, sometimes I don't think we would know majesty and glory if it smacked us in the face. You know what? Looking at the accounts of the Gospels, I believe that's true. These people saw the mighty works that Jesus was doing, and all they saw was the sign. They didn't see who the sign was pointing to. God was in their midst. I'm not saying that I would have been wise enough to to recognize him. I'm just like one of these people in the crowd. But would you look at the irony of the next section? Look at verse 43, the second half. But while they were all marveling, while they were all marveling at, at everything he was doing, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The people marveled at what God was doing. The text says that they were astonished at the majesty of God. They didn't recognize that God was before them. So when Jesus foretells his death, while the crowds are marveling at his work, he's making a very striking statement. The people loved the great works they were seeing, but they would soon hate the man who did them. In their eyes, Jesus wasn't majestic enough to be the Christ. Impressed humans are also forgetful humans. They would soon forget Jesus' work because his majesty was not the kind of majesty that they wanted. They loved him when, they di- when he did what they wanted him to do. But as soon as he showed the humble and sacrificial character of God, they wanted nothing to do with him. As a matter of fact, soon they'd want to crucify him for it. The majesty of Christ subverts our preconceived notions of majesty. In our eyes, majesty comes with political power, financial power, physical prowess, external beauty, and Jesus, as a man, had none of these things. But he still possessed the majesty of God. Church, majesty is not found in the attributes that humans tend to look for. Majesty is found in Hebrews 2, verses 8 through 10. Start a few words in, it'll be on the screen. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of what? Say it out loud. Suffering and death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste what? Death for everyone. That's right. 
For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of our salvation, of their salvation, perfect through what? Suffering. Church majesty is not what we think it is. Jesus redefines what majesty looks like for us. He came here to be the good news that through true majesty of Jesus, majesty in the form of a suffering servant, we would be saved from sin and death. It is hard for us to believe, and even harder for the unbelieving world to understand, but the most majestic act of God was for the Son of God to live humbly, live a perfect yet quiet life, be delivered over to sinful men, suffer on a cross, pour out his blood, and lay down his life for the people he loved. Jesus baffles the sin-affected mind with a better picture of majesty than we even care to believe. This is the majesty to which we cannot attain. A pastor named Sam Storms once wrote, Who else do you know that is high yet humble? Strong, yet sensitive, righteous, yet gracious, powerful, yet merciful, authoritative, yet tender, holy, yet forgiving, just, yet compassionate, angry, yet gentle, and firm, yet friendly. This is the unique majesty of Christ and Christ alone. And the God-man with all of these characteristics died for our sins. And you know what? Even when Jesus spoke very plainly about his death and being handed over to men, the disciples didn't understand. What they heard was not the kind of Christ that they were expecting, so they were afraid to ask. The text says that the meaning of Jesus foretelling his death was concealed from them. I don't understand why God would do that except to point back to a couple of sermons ago and explain that it was God preserving the plan of salvation until it was time to execute the work. Oh, but church. Oh, but church. After the resurrection, the disciples understood. They understood the majesty of Christ. Christ corrects our faulty understanding of majesty, making Jesus the standard by which we measure all things. The majesty of Christ, though visibly concealed, shines brightly through his unique work. Now let me close by encouraging you. Christ is just as majestic today as he was those many years ago in his earthly ministry. He is still proving himself to us today through his work, though in some ways it might be visibly concealed. He still heals people who are oppressed by demonic forces. He still proves that he is more majestic than any other person in history. How? Because his glory and his majesty is shown through the fact that he lives 
though he died. He is our resurrected Savior, and his power is so wonderful that death could not keep him dead. After paying for our sins, he was resurrected from the dead and returned to his Father. The one who healed our diseases and suffered for us is now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning in majesty for all eternity. And after paying for our sins, he resurrected. And he loves you. This God-man who resurrected from the dead loves you and he wants to heal you from your sin and all that oppresses you. If you've already put your faith in Jesus, let me commission you right now on top of the Great Commission to go and tell people this good news. If you have been forgiven of your sin, you are someone who has been commissioned through Jesus at the Great Commission to share with others the good news that you know. It's a travesty for us not to share it. So please, share the good news. He will work through your efforts because he lives and works and does mighty deeds through us. And if you're a person here today who has not put your faith in Jesus and you wish to put your faith in him today, Greg will be in the back. Maybe one of our elders will be in the back. And during this next song, they would love to pray with you and answer any questions that you may have about your newfound faith. I would encourage you to put your faith in Jesus today if you have not. So let's pray. And then we're going to sing a song in response. Father, we thank you for the goodness that you showed in sending us your majestic Son. The Son who is beautiful beyond compare, powerful beyond compare. There is no one like him. And is it because of his uniqueness? <clears throat> as the Son of God, his uniqueness as completely sinless, his uniqueness in power, it's because of this that we can trust in him where we could never have trusted ourselves. Salvation is found in you and you alone, and we honor you and give you glory because of that. I pray that those who are here today who have not put their faith in you, that you would just move in their hearts to recognize the truth of what we are talking about. I pray that you would receive glory through them and every person here who has already put their faith in you. Father, we love you. We thank you for the good gift that you gave us in Jesus Christ. May we give him glory in all things and help us as we go about our week to honor you in all that we do when we leave these doors. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.